looking at the life of Moses in the Old Testament, particularly mainly in the book of Exodus, though we'll dip into the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy near the end of the series. Uh, but so far, we've seen um, Moses being called and prepared by God to be this deliverer for his people, for the people of Israel who were in slavery in Egypt. And last week, what we saw is God beginning to uh, bring these plagues upon the land of Egypt. We, we did a sort of overview of plagues one through nine that God brought in order to um, make Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. And yet we saw that they actually didn't. They actually caused Pharaoh to harden his heart more. And so what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue this series is uh, this tenth and final plague, a plague that's known as the Passover. And though we are in this series looking at the life of Moses uh, in this story, and really the ones last, the plagues we looked at last week as well, the story is really about God. Moses simply just receives the information for what he's going to do. So though we are looking at the life of Moses, especially today, we're really just looking at God and who we see about who he is and what he's about in this final plague. And so if you want to follow along the passage that we're going to look at, uh, the Passover actually covers all of chapter 11 and 12 of the book of Exodus. We're not going to cover all of that. But the passage we're going to focus on is printed in your bulletin, and uh, it's the beginning of Exodus chapter 12. I'm not going to read the entire section there. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 13. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to read that to get it before us, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive in and look at it. So Exodus chapter 12 starting in verse 1, and invites you now to hear God's word to us today. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for, the, for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the, this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs with its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, and um, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time now that we get to sit in it and uh, be still and hear from you. And Lord, uh, I pray, I know that it's easy to come in here and, and either have our minds on what happened this past week, maybe things that were hard or things we regret, 
um, or to be looking forward to the coming week and to think about things that we're anxious about or that we're frustrated we're going to have to do or whatever it is. It's, it's hard to be here, uh, and yet um, that's what you call us to do now. That's what you invite us to do. And so uh, we ask that you would still us now as we get to look at this story together and that your spirit would open our hearts and our eyes to see what you have for us. Um, and we pray that you'd be glorified and that we'd be changed. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. So yesterday was uh, May's birthday party, my daughter May, her f- fourth birthday party at our house, and uh, we had a great time. It was awesome. In many ways, it was a very standard birthday party. Uh, we had some family and her friends over from her preschool class along with their parents. The kids played. Uh, the parents talked while also you know, making sure that all the, everything was under control with the kids playing. Uh, we had pizza, we had cake, we sang happy birthday, May got some presents. It was great. Very standard party overall, but there was something that made it a little different. Really someone who made it different, a, a special guest of honor we had at the party that made it stand out, uh, a special guest who came to celebrate with us all the way from her kingdom in Arendelle or Disney World, depending on where you think she lives these days. But, of course, I'm talking about Elsa. Elsa from Frozen fame, the ice queen herself. She came by for about 30 minutes to hang out with the kids and to play some games with them. And it was amazing. Sarah and I didn't really know what to expect. It totally exceeded all of our expectations. It was so great. But as fun as it was, I was thinking about it, how strange this would have been for me a few years ago. If you took me from, let's just say, five years ago and just dropped me into this party yesterday, because at that point, even though I knew who Elsa was and I knew some of the general details about Frozen, I didn't know the backstory. I hadn't seen the movies. I hadn't listened to the songs. And so I still would have really enjoyed watching May and the kids being excited, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got it, right? It wouldn't have connected with me like it did. But because I have been very immersed in Frozen, along with many other princess stories over the past couple of years, it, it wasn't strange. It, I mean, at least as little as it could be to have Elsa, the real Elsa, in your house, right? But because this is the case, because I do know the backstory, I really, I did get it. I was able to connect with it in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if I didn't. And now, the reason I bring that up is because I think there's a parallel here between the message of the Christian faith, what we call the good news of the gospel, and this story that we're looking at today. Because if you think about it, there are a lot of strange things we talk about when we talk about the Christian faith, right? We, we talk about strange things like Jesus being the Lamb of God, or uh, strange things like us being covered by the blood, or God passing over our sins, these ideas and concepts that we talk about and that we sing about, but ideas and concepts that can be hard, hard to get, that can, can be hard to connect with in a real way if we don't know the backstory. And the whole of the Old Testament functions this way. Really, the Old Testament is the, the backstory of the gospel to the story about Jesus that's so central about Christianity. But this story in particular of the Passover is so central. It's so key to getting it, to helping these ideas that can be sort of fuzzy and can feel just like these churchy words or phrases we use. It really helps these become more concrete 
and more real in our lives. And in his commentary on this passage, Tim Chester says this, quote, The rest of the Bible sees the Exodus and the Passover in particular as a paradigm of salvation from sin and judgment culminating in redemption through Jesus, our Passover lamb. And so this morning, we're going to look at this, this story of this tenth and final plague like this as a, a paradigm of our salvation, the salvation God has brought about for us in Jesus Christ. And my hope is that as we do, it'll, it'll help us get the gospel, like get, get why we're here, what we're doing more clear in our head and in our hearts. The Apostle Paul asked his friends in the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 4 to pray that he'll make the gospel clear to those he's sharing it with because he knows that's so important. And that's been my prayer for us this week as well as we look at this passage together. And so, so let's do this. Let's jump in and look at it as a, a picture of God's salvation. And as we do that, what do we see? Well, we're going to walk through three different things as we move through it. And so let's start first with this. First, that we see that God's salvation is always undeserved. That's the first thing as we look at this, that God's salvation is always undeserved. And, and this is one of the most important things about this plague. As I said, this is the 10th and final one. It's the decisive one. And so it's unique in several ways. But one of the ways it's unique is that it, it doesn't have the distinctions many of the other plagues have. What do I mean by that? In the other plagues, God makes a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. So he says, here's what I'm going to do to you, Egyptians, but, but I'm not going to do that to you, people of Israel. And you see this really going from the fourth plague on, the, starting with the fourth plague with the flies. There's a distinction. And while, of course, there is a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, the people of Israel are God's chosen people, the people of Egypt are not, it makes you think there's a more fundamental distinction between these two. It almost makes you, gives you this idea that the Egyptians are the bad guys, right? They're the bad guys in the story, and the Israelites are the good guys, right? But what's unique and so interesting about this plague is you actually don't find that distinction here. Because notice as Moses gives the instructions to the elders, he tells them this, Starting in verse 21 of our passage, he says, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And so if this was like the other plagues that have happened so far, God would have just told them, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through the land and I'm going to strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so all you need to do is just sit back and wait. Wait until I've done this. But that's not at all what he tells them. He tells them, unlike the other plagues, this time you have to do something. You have to get a lamb. You have to kill it. And you have to take its blood and cover your house with it. And then you have to stay inside. Don't leave your house until the morning. And if you don't do these things, if you don't cover your doorway in blood, if you don't stay in your house, you're in trouble. And the same thing that happened is going to happen to the Egyptians will also happen to you. So it's really interesting, the difference. Well, why? Why, why is this one different? Well, in my study this week, I, I read something about this that I've never thought about before. 
And so in all the other plagues, God works through Moses and Aaron. So he gives the instructions, and it's, of course, his power that makes it happen, but they serve as his mediators. And so he'll say, lift up your staff and do this. Stretch out your hand and do that. But here he doesn't do any of that. In fact, all Moses and Aaron do is is just tell the people what's going to happen, and they get out of the way. Because, as God says in verse 12 of our passage, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so in this final plague, Moses and Aaron aren't necessary because God himself, the judge of all the earth, he's going to be the one who's passing through the land. And that's why the Israelites have to participate. And that's why they have to do what they have to do with the land. Because even though they are God's chosen people, when it comes to the unmediated presence of God, there are, there are no distinctions. There are no good guys and bad guys. As the Apostle Paul says later in Romans chapter 3, there is no distinction. And why not? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, though you and I are created good in the image of our good and perfect God with great dignity and worth, dignity and worth we still have, by the way, we've turned our back on him. All of us have, on our own, in our flesh. We don't want to listen to him. We don't want to let God lead us. And and really, from this Sunday on, we'll see over and over how this shows up for the people of Israel in this story even though God saves them in this miraculous way here, even though he continues to be there for them and provide for them, they don't listen to him. They grumble and they complain. Eventually they go so far to make golden calves that they worship. So it's like they're clearly not the good guys and girls who deserve this. And see, if you and I are going to get the gospel clear, this is the first thing that has to be clear for us. God's salvation is never something you and I deserve. We're not the good guys. And the people like outside the church aren't the bad guys. This story levels the playing field and it tells us we all need God's mercy. We could say it this way. The gospel never gives us a reason to start believing our own hype. So as many of you probably know, March Madness started this past weekend. And one of the staples of March Madness are the upsets. Right. Every year, amazing upsets. Even this year, we've had some. Right? Shout out to Fairleigh Dickinson. That was the craziest one. And Princeton, they, they did it twice. And if you think about it, that's a, this is a common refrain when upsets happen. Like People will talk about it, and they're like, what happened? Well, they, they'll say some version of, they started believing their own hype. Right? Meaning that, that maybe they were hot, doing well, have a lot of talent, and they come into the game thinking, oh, we got this. This team stinks compared to us. And when they start thinking that way, that causes them to overlook the team. And then ultimately the team comes in and beats them, right? It leads to their downfall. See, the Passover should have always kept the people of Israel humble. It should have kept them from ever believing their own hype. It should have made them an amazingly humble community of people because it showed them and would continue to remind them they didn't deserve for God to save them any more than the Egyptians, But God saved them just because he did, (laughs) just because he wanted to, just because he loves them. And see, the gospel should tell us the same thing. 
It should do the same thing for us. It should keep us humble. It should move us away from pride and self-righteousness, from creating these divisions and distinctions, labeling people around us as good or bad because of things like their behavior or their politics or their theology or their parenting style or just the way they approach life in general. Distinctions, which by the way, we make all the time, right? Even without thinking about it. I know I do when I think about my own heart. The gospel should move us away from this, right? Because when you're saved by God's free grace alone, when it's nothing you deserve, there's no room to be prideful or self-righteous towards other people because we're all in the same boat. None of us deserve this from God on our own merit. We all need his grace. And I don't know what this looks like for you in your life today, but I'd encourage you to think about it. Like, how do I do this? How do I make these kind of distinctions? Who, who and when do I put people in this, this bad guy category and, and put myself in the good guy category? But the more the gospel gets clear for you, the more it will move you away from this. And in fact, probably one of the best ways to know like where you are and, and if and how you're growing in Jesus in the gospel is, is to look at your life and ask this question, and really scarier but better, ask somebody who knows you really well. Like on a scale of prideful and self-righteous to humble and gracious, which way am I moving on that? Right? Where am I? Which, which direction am I going? And so this is the first thing we see here in this story. God's salvation, it's never something we deserve. Then second, building off that, thinking about this as a paradigm of salvation. This story also shows us that God's salvation is only possible if someone takes our place. It's only possible if someone takes our place. And this is at the center of this. At the center of this Passover event is a lamb. So God gives Moses instructions about a lamb and what they're to do with it in verses 1 through 13. Then they call the elders together, pass the instructions on to them in verses 21 through 28. And the purpose of the lamb is substitution. It's to take the place of the Israelite people when God passes over. And so we didn't print this part, but right after the part we did print, verse 29 of chapter 12 tells us, this is the actual recounting of the event itself. It says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And in context, it's clear there, he's talking about the houses of the Egyptians. There was not a house among them where someone was not dead. But it's also true of the houses of the Israelites, isn't it? There was also not a house among them where someone was not dead, only it wasn't their firstborn son, it was a lamb. It was a lamb they were going to eat in the Passover feast. And we just said God doesn't make distinctions like we do, that salvation is always undeserved. So then why are the Israelite people saved when God passes over? Well, one reason and one reason only, their houses were covered in the blood of the Lamb. Again, verse 12, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beasts. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so God saves his people, his firstborn, in this plague because the lamb has taken their place. Substitution is at the heart of this story. It's It's at the heart of their salvation. And it's at the heart of ours too. You see, years later when Jesus Christ first comes on the scene in John's gospel and his cousin, John the Baptist, sees him, here's the first thing he says in John 1, 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Then the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 1, 19, talks about the blood of Jesus as being the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And when Jesus actually does take our place on the cross in his great act of substitution, do you know when that happens? It happens during the Passover feast. And that's not a coincidence. And so what this means is, just like the people of Israel didn't deserve God's salvation and were only saved because a perfect spotless lamb took their place, so are you and I. Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken our place. And this is a scandalous message. It's an offensive message. Chuck DeGroat, in his book on the Exodus story, Leaving Egypt, says one of the main messages of the Passover event, and therefore the gospel, is this, I can't fix myself. I can't rescue myself. I can't deliver myself from the bondage I experience to slavery and sin. Someone else has to do it for me. Someone else has to live and die in my place. Someone else has to fix me. And if we're honest, for people like us who who tend to organize our whole lives around the idea that we can and should be able to fix ourselves, that's a really hard message to accept. Like, really? I can't fix myself? I can't work harder and do better and just figure it out. Like it's so counterintuitive and it's so countercultural. And that's why so many of us end up rejecting it. But it's the greatest story of love there's ever been. So I recently read an article about two college wrestlers from Northwest College in Wyoming. These guys, Brady Lowry and Kendall Cummings. And they were practice partners. They'd become close friends. They loved the outdoors And as college students uh, tend to do, they're always looking for ways to to earn some new spending money. And so they went to do this thing called shed hunting, which I'd never heard of. But apparently it's like going out and trying to find um, antlers, horns, that animals like a moose or uh, an elk or something like that has, has fallen off once a year for them. And so they were going out to do this. And this particular day they went out to do it, it was going really well. And they'd found a lot of what they were looking for. They'd already made a lot of money. And going well, when all of a sudden, near the end of the day, as as Brady was in the middle of an area of deep brush, about a 500-pound grizzly bear came and just hit him in the chest out of nowhere. And this article points out that while grizzly grizzly bear attacks are rare, they're incredibly dangerous. And and some wildlife experts even say that if you were to to almost do like a March Madness and like seed the most ferocious animals on land, a grizzly bear might be the number one overall seed. So they're so dangerous. And so when Kendall Cummings, who was standing, his friend who was standing 30 yards away, saw this bear just crushing his friend, he had a decision to make. 
Like, what am I going to do? His first thought was to run and try to get their other friends, but he realized if I do that, Brady's going to be dead in like 30 seconds. So then he tried to yell at the bear to get its attention. Then he picked up a stick and threw it. A, A stone, nothing happened. So he's like, I've only got one choice. And so he did the only thing he could do. He ran as fast as he could toward the back of the bear, dove on it, probably did his best wrestling move and just started pulling the bear's hair around its neck as hard as he could. And this did get the bear's attention and it turned the bear's attention from Brady to him and it almost got him killed. And in fact, the bear, the only way it didn't kill him was that it thought it had and it was leaving, it covered him in dirt and it was coming back, it left and was gonna come back probably, they thought, to eat him. But by then his friends had got him, took him to the hospital and in a miracle of sorts, he recovered, right? But it was this amazing story of love, like all the best ones, a story of substitution, a story of someone giving up their life to save someone else. Kendall giving up his life to save his friend, Brady, And you see, the story of Jesus, the story of the lamb is the greatest story of substitutionary love there ever is and there's ever been. Because when Jesus saw where we were, when he looked at our situation from heaven, deserving God's judgment, his condemnation because of our sin, he had a decision to make. And Jesus knew exactly what it was going to require of him. He knew it was going to mean that he was going to die. And yet when he looked at it and he counted the cost, what did he do? He ran towards it anyway. And when God the Father, he he knew how hard it was going to be to watch his firstborn son do this, to lose him in this way. And yet when the time came, he gave him anyway. And now because he's done that, when you and I trust him to rescue us, to fix our situation, we can never fix on our own. We too, like the people of Israel in this story, can be passed over in spite of all of our sins and and brought into the family of God as his beloved sons and daughters with his very spirit dwelling within us. The apostle Paul says it this way. We looked at the beginning of this earlier, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he keeps going. Here's the good news. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so in the spirit of of getting the gospel clear, let me just ask you a, a very straightforward question. Have you received Jesus by faith? Have you trusted Jesus to fix you, to rescue you, Is his blood over the the doorway of your life? Do you trust him? And if you don't, do you see how much he loves you? This is how salvation works. This is what it means to be a Christian. When you boil it down, it's really simple. This story makes it so clear. Like that's it. That's all there is to it. Are Are you covered in the blood or not? Are you in the house? or not. And then finally and briefly, there's one more thing we see here about God's salvation and how it works in our lives. We've seen it's always undeserved. It's only possible if someone takes our place. And lastly, this shows us that God's salvation in the past is what shapes our present and our future. Because do you notice here how there's so much emphasis in this chapter on Moses and the people of Israel remembering? 
this event. I wish we could tease this out a lot more than we have time to do, but just to give you a couple highlights. So verse 2 of chapter 12, look at what God says at the beginning of his instructions to Moses. He says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And what he's saying is going forward, this is going to be how you tell time. This is where your year is going to start by remembering this great act I've done to save you. And then moving forward to verse 24 of chapter 12, as Moses is recounting these instructions to the people of Israel, he says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And so God tells them, I want you to remember what I've done for you. I want you to remember the salvation I've worked on your behalf. And I want it to define you. More than anything else, I want it to shape and form you. Not only today when I do it, but for the rest of your life. No matter what happens, no matter where you go, no matter what you do. And this is so important for us to get clear because I think even when we do believe in Jesus and trust him to rescue us, it's easy to, to think that we then grow by going and doing a lot of stuff for him, right? Becoming more disciplined, more holy and moral and serve more and lead things. And, and those things do and should come in different ways. But this is such a great reminder. This is where it starts, this is how real growth, real change happens. It's, it's not by going out and, and trying to get busy for God. It's actually first by stopping to remember what he's done. By first becoming a people and a community formed by this, this amazing thing God has done for us. Remembering how stuck we were in our sin, in our slavery, how undeserving we were, how we couldn't fix ourselves. But then remembering what God did to rescue us, giving up everything to save us. Like that's what shapes everything. And we're going to end this morning our time together by actually doing just this. And so if you're a regular at Hope, you know typically we only do communion on the first Sunday of the month. And that's not some kind of rule. That's just, a, that's just been the way we've done it. Uh, but today, because of this passage, we wanted to create some more space um, for us to do it. And we'll still do it again in a couple of weeks. Uh, but we're going to do it today. Because like we talked about with baptism earlier being the sacrament that replaces circumcision, in the Old Testament, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament that replaces the Passover meal in the new. And, and Passover was celebrated to remember what God has done. And, and so is the Lord's Supper for us to remember. And, and there are other elements to it, but that's one of the main things. It's something tangible we can do. It's a physical practice we can participate in to help us remember what God's done for us in Jesus. Because Jesus himself, on the night that he was betrayed, while he and his disciples were, were in the middle of celebrating this Passover feast, so many years later, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Every time you eat of it, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come to this table this morning, this is an invitation for us to do the very thing God's commanding his people to do in this passage. For us to remember, for us to get the gospel clearer in our heads and in our hearts by eating the bread and drinking the wine or grape juice, 
remembering the lamb who was slain for us, our true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And, and instead of all the other things we normally look to to form and shape us, to let this be the, the thing that truly does, that, that truly forms us. And so if you're here today and you do understand, you recognize, I don't deserve God's salvation. And my only hope is, if, is for someone to come and take my place, for Jesus to die on my behalf. And if you want to remember that by participating in this table, then I'd invite you to come. This table's for you. The only, the, really, the only requirement is to know you need Jesus and to want him. And so if that's you, I would encourage you to come and eat and drink here in a few minutes. Uh, but if you're here and that's not where you're at today, that's okay. We're really glad you're here. And I would encourage you to not just go through the religious motions. It's easy to, to do that when you're at something like this, when you might feel awkward or left out. Trust me, we're not, we're not looking, we're not checking. And so if that's you, I'd encourage you to just hang in your seat. And instead of going through the motions, take some time to really think about the stuff. Think about where you are uh, with Jesus. And, and if you are resistant, why? And maybe even ask God to reveal himself to you. Uh, but if you're here, and like I said, you know you need Jesus, this table is for you, and I'd invite you to come. It's our practice to come and receive the elements from the officers who will be up front, and then you can take those back to your seat, and then I'll come up as we've all, after we've all gotten them, and I'll lead us in taking of them together. The outer rings are going to be grape juice. The inner rings are real wine. Um, there's a gluten-free uh, bowl that I'll be, uh, will be open up here if you need that. You can just come ahead to the table and grab that. And then also you'll notice in the spirit of this passage, we're actually using uh, crackers that are unleavened. And so um, just don't want to surprise you too much as you get up here and see something different. But that's, that's why we're doing that today. Um, so let me pray for us if the officers will come forward and then we'll, we'll take it us together. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, this message and the good news of the gospel. I pray that by your spirit now we would be able to pause and remember this, uh, remember all that you've done for us and that it would be the thing that shapes us both today and as we move out from here. We ask in your name, amen.